to begin with this morning, I just want to uh, open in another word of prayer. Lord, I just pray that you be with this message. I pray that you have, your Holy Spirit has tilled the soil of our hearts and that we are prepared to let your word take root. Father, that we find our joy in you and in, our, and in what you have to say to us. That you be glorified through this, that you challenge us, and that uh, we grow closer and closer to you, Lord. Amen. You know, many Christians don't have joy. We've been doing this series now on, on joy in Christ, ultimately, is what we're getting towards, and that's kind of the underlying theme of every message. But many Christians don't have joy. You go overseas, I've done this, I've gone into some uh, third world, world countries, and you meet some Christians, and they literally have nothing, but they have the joy of the Lord. They're so excited to go to church. You meet a Christian in, in Sri Lanka or in, in Mexico, and you say, hey, what are you doing Sunday? I'm going to church, and they're excited for it because they're going to go hear the word. And they, they love their Bible. If you meet someone who has never had a Bible and they finally get one, it's their most prized possession. In the underground church in China and certain uh, Muslim countries, a Bible is so rare and it's so hard to get their hands on that sometimes a preacher might just rip a page out of a, a Bible if that's what he can do. And he'll preach on just that text for weeks and weeks. You guys think I'm long-winded, right? You think I can really milk a text. But they do because there's so much there and that's all they have. And they are so happy, so joyful to have that. But then you come to the United States and you, you meet Christians and it's, yeah, I guess I got to go to church Sunday. Uh, man, I, uh, I haven't read my Bible in a couple of months, maybe. Um, hey, you know, there's no joy in that. And I'm convinced one reason is because as Christians, we've, especially American Christians, we've been, we've been trained to not be satisfied in our Christianity. We'll sing songs about we have to have more of God in our life. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to want more of God in your life if you want more of his influence, more of his fruit uh, exhibited in your life, if you want more of his word in your heart and so on. But it's a totally different thing. It's, it's a spiritually immature thing to not know how to be satisfied in Christ it's one thing to say that we want more of the Holy Spirit's power or we want more of the Holy Spirit's fruit, like I said, but to want just more of the supernatural or more of the gifts. Well, if you remember 1 Corinthians 12, that's kind of what got them in trouble, right? They wanted the higher gifts for the wrong reasons. And if we're just wanting that, if we're not satisfied with what God's given us that way, then that leads to problems. Many Christians experience this. In fact, it's one thing. We're a Pentecostal church. We're Assembly of God. Typically, the Assemblies of God or the, the Pentecostal denominations are some of the fastest growing denominations on planet Earth. But it's now experiencing something many people don't like to talk about. Now, you can Google the numbers and you can, you can see what's going on, that the church in general is losing members. But when it comes to Pentecostal denominations, not only are people leaving, they're, they're leaving and going to other more conservative churches because there's this whiplash effect of sorts where they're, they're not satisfied. They've, they're not meeting their own expectations. And when we Google the state of the church and people who are leaving, you'll notice that Presbyterians are actually bleeding the most people. They're, they've lost about 40% of their congregations over the past few years. Methodists, Lutherans, Catholics, not far behind. But in Pentecostalism, what we don't understand is that because we gain so much ground, our numbers are skewed. They're off. We are losing many people, but because we grow so fast, it's almost as if we don't care. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to have that conversation. And the Assemblies of God, for, for example, just this past year, I, I, I know of a district, it's not North Dakota, but I learned of a district that at their district council was very braggadocious about the fact they'd planted eight churches since 2018. In four years' time, they'd planted eight churches. That's amazing. That's good, right? Planting eight churches, you'd think that's something to be celebrated. Until they began to roll out their numbers and you actually look at the data, and in 2018, they had 224 churches. And even after planting those eight churches, in 2022, they had 218. They'd actually lost six. 
So that means they had actually lost 14 total churches. But don't look at that. That's what we don't, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to have that conversation. Look at the eight we planted, right? We are seeing how this is a, a problem. In many cases, the church is losing more than it's gaining. The church is not meant to spin its tires. Amen? Well, we have to ask, why do we see this happening? And I believe one of the biggest reasons is that we are teaching people to be unsatisfied. We're training them to say, we have to have this other stuff. We're not like the Apostle Paul who said, I don't speak from want. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in abundance in any and every thing. I have learned the secret of being fulfilled and going hungry. What was the secret? To be in Christ. The same thing he consistently told the churches. To be in Christ. We never once see the apostles say, Lord, give me more power. Lord, I just want more of you. Instead, what they say is, I'm in Christ. And that's all I've ever needed. They commanded us to walk in him. We saw that last week. So I would ask you this morning as we move forward, are you satisfied in him? Are you truly satisfied in Christ? Christians, if we are not careful, we become emotional addicts. We want the next high, the next Holy Spirit. And it may not even be the Holy Spirit. We just want a spiritual rush. And in doing these things, we neglect the word of God. We neglect God himself. Today, I want to show you that there is much joy to truly be had in Scripture. That's one of the reasons the Holy Spirit inspired it and gave it to us, to give to us the joy that God wants to reveal to us in it. Now, we read in Psalm 119, if you have your Bible open, it's a, we're going to begin reading in verse 169. It says, Let my cry of lamentation come near before you, O Yahweh. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue answer with your word, for all your commandments are righteous. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Yahweh, and your, lo your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you, and let your judgments help me. I have wandered off like a lost sheep. Search for your slave, for I have not forgotten your commandments. Today's title is Joy in the Word. And if you're taking notes and you want to write this down, we do not only find joy in reading it, but in understanding God's Word. I'll say it again. We do not only find joy in reading the Bible, but in understanding it as God's Word. Now, those of you who know me, you know I love studying and reading Scripture. Someone once said, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. There is so much joy and so many reasons to be excited, to rejoice in our faith, all found within your Bible. Matthew Henry once said it like this, we should always make the word of God the rule of our discourse so as never to transgress it by sinful speaking or sinful silence. Now, since I've been your pastor, I've tried very hard to bring study of scripture to the fore, to make that a, a thing that we are focused on here at Faith Assembly of God, that we are pouring through scripture on Wednesday nights. I know we haven't been able to have class because of illness and weather and things like that, but we are going through the book of Ephesians and we're studying that and learning how to dig deep and meditate on scripture and study with a, the, even the Greek and things like that. But if prayer, we, we focus a lot on prayer, and that's great. We should. We have a whole week of prayer and fasting coming up, if you remember the video. But if prayer is the oil to the church's engine, Scripture is the gasoline. From Scripture, we develop our theology. And if you remember the, the series we did through the Gospel of Mark, your life imitates your theology. You believe that? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was this famous uh, doctor, actually, turned pastor. And he once said, preaching is theology on fire. So it's safe to say if, if Scripture inspires our theology and preaching is theology on fire, then preaching really should be Scripture on fire. 
It should be reaching us and teaching us and, and changing us. I think one of the best, and I've shared this with Pastor Calvin, one of the best passages in all of the Bible that explains what preaching should really look like, it's Nehemiah 8.8. 8. It says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And we're not really looking at the topic of preaching today, but the idea of understanding the scriptures that is so important to the life of the Christian, to the maturing process of the Christian. There's more to just hearing the word of God. We should seek to understand what it says. I had someone recently say to me, we were talking about uh, the series we did on uh, leadership and servanthood. And someone kind of got upset with something I said. And they said, well, that's just how you understand Scripture. And I said, it's also how the Apostle Paul understood it. Because if you notice in my messages, many times I use a lot of Scripture to show you it's not Jeff's Word. It's God's Word. And it harmonizes. And it sings together these points, these things that the Lord is trying to say to us. And if we don't understand that, if we just read it to have head knowledge, it doesn't change our heart. There's more to just hearing it. We have to let it speak to us. There's more to just quoting the word. People should know what it means. They should get the sense, as Nehemiah 8 says. When we read our Bibles, it's not just enough to glance at the words on the page and mumble them to ourselves. We should seek to understand what it's saying. And in understanding it, I promise we will find a great joy. Now we read back in verse 169, it says, Let my cry of lamentation come near before you, O Yahweh. Give me understanding according to your word. Now, in this translation, it says, O Yahweh. So let's, let's talk about understanding for a second. This isn't even in my notes. This is for free. All right? When in your Bible, if you have your Bible open, chances are your Bible doesn't say, O Yahweh. How many of you, that's true? Okay. Pretty much everybody who's participating this morning raised their hand. All right. Instead, I bet if I were a gambling man, I would say that it says, oh, Lord. And it's all, it's kind of a weird looking font, right? It's a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, but the O-R-D is shorter, smaller, right? Oh, Lord, right? When you read your Bible and you see where it says Lord like that, what the translators have done is Put Lord over where God's actual name, it's called the Tetragrammatron, Yahweh, or Yahweh, if you're Hebrew. It's Y-H-W-H, and that's just how we pronounce it. That's actually what the Hebrew word is. It's the actual name of God. But in most translations, they don't want to do that because we don't want to use the Lord's name in vain, and they're very cautious with that. So they just put Lord, and we've done that since the King James Bible, or even before that. So... That's just something, a little extra understanding. We are looking at Psalm 119. This is the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter. If you want to go back a few pages, Psalm 119 is the longest. And it is called an acrostic. An acrostic is a poem or a song which follows a certain pattern with its lettering. A certain uh, a line of thinking. And in the Psalm 119, the acrostic is 22 stanzas long, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each poetic line of each stanza begins with the same letter. If you notice in your Bible, before verse 169, it likely says tav. That's the Hebrew word, or the Hebrew letter for what we would say T, right? Okay. So in each stanza, there are eight lines. These eight lines are connected to certain Hebrew words that are used throughout Psalm 119. There is genius behind the structure of the longest chapter of your Bible. It's almost like there's a divine mind behind it. The eight words that generally are, are translated as law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, and word. What, are this, what is that all referring to? God's word. Scripture. And it, it's used continually throughout this psalm. Now, we, we know this is the Old Testament, right? Psalm 119, that's in the Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't even been written yet. The Old Testament has not yet. By the time the ink was fresh on this page, the first, well, the first 
time Psalm 119 was written, the very first time, the Old Testament had not yet been compiled into what we call the Tanakh or the Old Testament. It hadn't been uh, sewn together or, or compiled, but the, uh, the writer would not have what we call the complete Bible. He would not have had all of Scripture, what we call the complete Word of God. Instead, when he's talking about your Word, your law, your precepts, your statutes, etc., he's referring to the only Bible he had, and that would have been what we sometimes call the Pentateuch or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law, the Jewish law. And some of you, your eyes are glazing over because church history is boring, but hear me out on this. The writer would naturally focus on that because that's the only Bible he had. Now, as Christians, we read this through a historical lens, but we also read this through the lens of Christ, through the lens of the New Testament. And so we understand this, and we have to ask that question, well, how does this connect us to the New Testament, to Christ? <clears throat> the emphasis in, in the Psalms is that there, in Psalm 119 specifically, is that there is a deep love for God's word. In fact, we're going to see there's a deep craving for an understanding of God's word. Why does that matter? Because Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that bear witness about me. In other words, all of scripture is pointing us to Christ. That's why it matters. While the law is important, many times Christians forget the fact the law is vital. It is an expression of God's character. It shows us both his love and his justice. We know that God sent Christ to fulfill the law, and God sent him to keep the law for us. Jesus Christ is the only person who kept the Jewish law perfectly, who died without sin. Because of his death, the law no longer condemns us, but through Christ, we are set free to accept it as a guide for pleasing Christ. And as we look at the immediate text, the, the last portion of chapter 119, the psalmist begins the stanza. He says, let my cry of lamentation come before you, O Yahweh. This is a cry of anxiety. This is a cry of worry, of fear. It's a lament. And most translations don't even acknowledge that. They say it's just a cry. If you look in the ESV or the NASB or your NIV, it typically just says a cry. And the reason the LSB translators add that, a cry of lamentation, is because they want us to understand. If you go and you look this word up, typically what you'll find in your Strong's Concordance or Blue Letter Bible is that it could be a cry of jubilation. That is not what the writer intends. It is a cry of lamentation, of anxiousness and stress. This is the same thing we see in the book of Job. Many of you are familiar with the book of Job. Job was a man who was oppressed, who was beaten down, who'd lost everything. And this is what he says in Job 16. He says, O earth, do not cover my blood and let there be no resting place for my cry. Why does he say this? Because he does not want the cry of his heart to just echo through the earth. He wants the Lord to hear him. That's why the words, the very next words out of his mouth, he says, even now behold my witnesses in heaven and my advocate is on high. We mentioned this passage last week. Job knows his Redeemer will hear him. So in his anxiety and in his oppression, he cries out much like the psalmist does. It's a very common phrase in the Psalms that we cry out. Uh, Psalm 18 verse 6 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Psalm 102, O Yahweh, hear my prayer and let my cry for help come to you. How many of you know that whenever you are in anguish and you pray and you cry out, your Father in heaven hears you? Your prayer does not fall on deaf ears. The psalmist goes on, he says, give me understanding. And this pretty much sums up all of Psalm 119. He says, the psalmist please. The psalmist wants to know God's word. He wants to understand God's word. It's not just enough to have it here, but he wants it in his heart. He wants to have read it, but he also wants to understand it. It enriches us. 
There's something wonderful in the Bible, something if you read through, and many of you know this, I, I like to read through the Bible at least once, maybe twice a year, cover to cover, because there's something in there I learn, something new I discover every time. And many of you have shared with me that you have the same experience. But a while back, this was long before I was your pastor, Jennifer and I were at another church, and we were in this class, and we were sitting with this this guy, and he was a, a college professor at a secular college, and we were talking about this very thing, about the importance of the Christian to read through the Bible. By the way, if you talk to any of my professors from when I was in Bible college, they'll tell you Jeff was a smart student. I was not. I was not the smartest guy in the room. I just had read the Bible, and I, I tried to understand it. Many times, that's where, that's where that began. I knew the textbook, the main textbook, right? Bible college, it's kind of in the phrasing. It's not that I was good, it was just that other students never did that. And because of the same reason this guy in this class gave, he said, I read through the Bible, I get to books like Numbers, and it just gets boring to me. Well, I've, you've heard me preach messages out of the book of Numbers. It's not boring. There's stuff to be found in there. We miss out on that. And so I began to lecture this professor in this class. I'm not even teaching the class. I just, you guys who know me know I'm very passionate about this. And at one point, Jennifer leaned over and she said, Jeff, stop. He gets it. I think he was starting to cry. My point is just simply, there is something for everyone in Scripture. Now, you may not be a history buff. You may not be someone who understands all the, the census stuff of numbers. But you may be an, archeo- uh, sorry, an, an ar- architectural person, and you might really enjoy all the measurements of the temple, weirdo. Right? That, there's, there's st- I, don't, I don't get anything out of that. But there's some people who read that in their, and they see it in their mind's eye. It unfolds before them. And they just love it, how it's so detailed. And, and I'm sitting here going, I don't care. Get me to a fight. I want, I want to hear about a battle or something cool. And, you know, but that's, that's me. But church, there's, there's something for you in Scripture. I promise you that. There's something in the Bible for everyone to read and draw them to Christ. Now, here's the scary thing. This is the thing that should really worry the leaders of our country. Leonard Ravenhill once said, Sodom had no Bible. In fact, he wrote a whole book with that as its title. And you have to wonder, as you read your Bible and you understand this, God pours out his holy judgment upon places like Sodom, Gomorrah, the Canaanites, the Philistines, these people who had no scripture. They had no way of knowing the law. They had no way of knowing the goodness of God other than going to Israel themselves and Israel was their enemy rather than humbling themselves and going to them and asking about these things or, or understanding natural revelation and things we don't have time to get into. Yet they chose to rebel against God anyway. So you have to ask, if they had no Bible and they rebelled, what judgment waits for a nation that has plenty of Bibles and still rebels, still pushes back? I saw a Facebook post recently. Some of you shared this. I'm not picking on Wes because I know he is one who did. And I, I agree with it. It was good. It was, a, it was a Twitter, a tweet from somebody and it was a screen grab and it was shared and, and it said something to the effect, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, the only time I'm asking him to do this, okay? <laughs> but it was something along the lines of, if the Apostle Paul saw the state of the church in America, we'd be getting a letter. That's absolutely true, right? I, that's what it said. Okay. It's absolutely true. But church, can I submit a thought to you this morning that God and his sovereignty saw the church in America and we got all the letters. And not only did we get all the letters, we have over a hundred English translations in our nation and yet we still don't read them. We still don't seek to understand them and we're still not listening. We have to seek to understand the word of God, not just for the sake of our own personal joy, but for the sake of our nation as well. The psalmist continues, he says, let my supplication come before you, deliver me according to your word. Now when he says, let my supplication before you, the psalmist is literally saying here, Lord, I am pleading with you for a pardon. I am making a request for mercy. 
Other psalms say the same thing. Psalm 28 says, Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to you, when I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Psalm 130 says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Just to name a couple. The idea is, much like in this psalm, the psalmist realizes his pleas, his petitions, his prayers, they make their way to the throne room of heaven, and God hears his need. You see, this is what really separates our God from the God of the pagans. Jeremiah 10 is not about Christmas trees, okay? If you read Jeremiah 10, just bookmark this in your mind because it's going to come up later in the message today, I promise. Jeremiah 10 is not about Christmas trees, okay? Just got that? Everybody tuck it away, okay? It's not. It, it says, actually, Jeremiah 10 very clearly calls the pagan idols, he calls them scarecrows. He says they, they take a tree and they decorate it. That's not a Christmas tree, saying very clearly. They carve it and they give it ears, but it can't hear. They give it a mouth, but it can't speak. Now, Psalm 115 Probably wasn't written by Jeremiah. It wasn't written by David. We're not sure who wrote it. But Jeremiah likely influenced it because this is what it said, speaking of the pagan idols. It says they have no mouths, but they, or they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. As for their hands, they do not feel. As for their feet, they do not walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Yet the God of Israel, the God that we read about in the Bible, he hears the cry of his children and he speaks to us through his word. And it's through his word the psalmist finds deliverance. He says, deliver me according to what? Your word. From reading this, you might begin to think, well, this psalmist, he has some weird kind of victim complex. He constantly seems to have this need to be saved. He's in turmoil. He's outgunned and he's outflanked by his enemies. Absolutely, yes, he is. You'd be right in assuming that, as are we. The psalmist knows what the Apostle Paul will later explain further. The Word of God is a weapon in our lives in the spiritual warfare we encounter. Ephesians 6, 17, the word, I'm sorry, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. A sword is typically an offensive or defensive weapon. Last week we looked at the shield of faith. Now today we see God has also given us the sword of the spirit, which is the word. The word inspired by the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But this is the fascinating thing. When Paul says this and the Hebrews writer also says this, we overlook this thing that Paul in Ephesians and the writer of Hebrews, when they talk about the sword, it's not some large Scottish claymore braveheart looking thing. It's more like a, a dagger or a short sword. In fact, it's actually the word machera. That's where we get the word machete. So if you know what a machete is, you kind of have an idea about what this sword or actually dagger, knife, looks like. And we've, we, I've preached about this before and I've talked about this. It's a smaller, very precise cutting weapon. It's something for up-close and personal warfare. For those moments when the devil seems to get too close, the temptation is too great, we have the mashera, the sharpest of cutting tools is available to us in the word of God. But hold on, this is where it's even more interesting. The word Paul uses in the writer of Hebrews for the word word is not logos. That's the typical overarching word of God. He uses the word rema, which is a very specific word word of God. That's interesting. The word the, the Hebrew or the writer in Hebrew uses in Psalm 119, according to your word, it's a corresponding Hebrew word. It's a similar idea. It's a very specific word, a specific promise. We see this play out in scripture. And when Jesus is tempted by the devil, did Jesus look at him and say, hey, I read the book. You lose, you can't get me. Is that what he did? Matthew 4, Luke 4? No. What did he say? It is written, and then he specifically quotes a verse, right? 
Now, you might say, well, he didn't say it was Psalm 91 that you just said. Because those chapters didn't exist until around the 1500s, all right? Jesus isn't going to give chapter and verse because chapter and verse didn't exist at that time. But he quotes very specific words from the Logos, from the Word. There are a lot of Christians, or at least those who claim to be Christians, who might say, I know what the Word says. The Word says this. The Word says that. But they could not show you where the Word says that, and they couldn't explain to you what the Word is saying or why it says those things. Church, I want to tell you that is very dangerous. In a sense, what a person who does that, what they are doing, is playing with a theological loaded gun. The word of God is no more personal to them than it was to the seven sons of Sceva in Acts 19. These were seven men. They were sons of a a chief priest, and they went around trying to cast out demons. This was a thing that was going on. They were saying, "I, I cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. People were trying to do that. They were using the logos as if it was a magic spell. If you remember when we talked about the Gerasene demoniac in the Mark uh, series, this is what people would do. They'd try to use magical incantations. They'd appeal to a, a stronger demon to try and cast out demons. And this is what the seven sons of Sceva were doing. So it, it reads in Acts 19, it says, the seven sons of one named Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued all of them, and utterly prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, often we read this and we say, well, that's because they weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't have a relationship with Christ, but they also did not know the word. The word rhema or the logos was not personal to them. They knew the right words to quote, but there was no power in them because they didn't know what that actually meant. So I ask you today, is your Bible personal to you? Is it something that brings you joy? The Bible, God's word, is a very powerful weapon in the hand of a believer. But don't just read it. Learn how to use it. Seek to understand it. And there is joy that will fill your mind as you seek to understand God's word. We go on to verse 171. It says, Let my lips pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. When the writer says lips here, he's literally saying the language of my life. The language that comes out of my person. It's not necessarily their literal lips that he's referring to. It's the Hebrew word, say fate. And it means the language of our life. But it's one of, this is what's, I, I love digging into this stuff. And the word say fate means three different things in the Hebrew language. It can mean language. It can mean seashore, or it can mean edge, like the edge of a rope. It's kind of like the word train in English, right? You can ride a train, You can train at the gym, or you can train somebody on the job. Three different meanings, same word. I think it's very fascinating that the writer of this psalm uses a word meaning language. Let the language of my life speak about you to bring forth your praise, but in its own original language can mean different things. Do with that what you will. But I think it's fascinating. And the writer wants this language of his life to pour forth songs of praise. The idea is very similar to when David writes in Psalm 51, 15, O Lord, open my lips that, I may, that my mouth may declare your praise. And from that context, we understand that this praise is not just worship, but it is a song of repentance as well. That when we're in sin, when we're being led astray, when we are chasing the butterflies that don't lead us closer to Christ, the language of our life should pour forth a song of praise that draws us back to Christ, that draws us back to the Lord. We see it also in Psalm 63, verse 3. It says, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will laud you, which is to say we just... We just worship him because we know he is good. We know he's loving and his good love is better than life itself. We let our language be that of praise or repentance and it reflects a heart that wants to draw near to him. That's what he's saying. This almost implies this. He says, for you teach me your statutes. And and when he says that, you teach me so that I can teach other people. 
I want to know this so that I can share this. That's, that's kind of the implication there. I'm passing it along to others. As the Lord teaches, as he instructs, as he guides, as he trains us, to circle back to that for a second, the same word is used by David in Psalm, one, uh, sorry, Psalm 18. He says, he trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. His statutes train us. His word prepares us to keep us on that narrow road that Jesus refers to in Matthew 7. But the one who understands and lives the word of God cannot help but have a heart that is turned towards him. That's what he's saying here. The saying goes, I'm an atheist because I've read the Bible. And the Christian says, but I've understood the Bible. That's why I'm a Christian. It's a big difference. It's trained his heart. It's been clear. When I say we need understanding, what, I, what I'm trying to get at is that our understanding penetrates our hearts and it changes us. It draws us to Christ. That's what the Word of God does. When God speaks, we see this in Scripture numerous times. It doesn't matter if he's, he's speaking the whole of creation into existence or telling a young man, pick up your mat and go home. You've been healed. Things change when God speaks. When we read our Bible, we should not just be looking at the pages and the words, but understand that the Creator of everything is speaking directly to our hearts. Should we not want to understand that? Should we not let that speak deeply to us? Verse 172 goes on. It says, let my tongue answer with your word for all your commandments are righteous. Now, if you look in other translations, again, you'll see that other, other translators will say, my tongue will sing of your word. And when this happens, I kind of want to understand why the, the Bible I'm reading, why it says something differently. I get a little curious. Now, the LSB translators, they draw a direct line from this passage to Psalm 51, verse 14, which reads, Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. So they see this correlation between answering and singing with it, with the word as well. well. How do they do that? What, why not? Why not just say that, right? Why do they say, "Let my tongue answer with your word"? Well, the the, the solution is very simple. It's an answer that is to be sang. It's to be worship. It's to be praise. When we're, when we're trapped, when we're beaten down, how do we answer? How does our life answer? Well, I'll tell you how the apostle Paul did it when he was in prison. Him and Silas, his friend, they were, it was about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the jailhouse were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. Why were they in prison? Because they were preaching the word of the Lord. And it, they'd come across a, a young lady who was demon-possessed. They cast the demon out. And that got them into some trouble. But what gets them out? Singing hymns by the way, which would have been psalms, the word of the Lord. Notice this, Paul has a life of prayer and a life in the word. What gets him in jail? His prayer life and the word. What gets him out? His prayer and singing the word. Because of that, salvation comes to the house of the Philippian jailer. An incredible miracle happens. What's the psalmist say about the tongue here? He says, let my tongue answer with your word. We should note, as the Psalms go, there is no middle ground when it comes to the tongue. Psalm 34, 13 says, guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So it's, it's either a good thing. He says, my tongue will utter your, righteous, your righteousness and your praises all day long. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks justice. So it could be a good thing or it's a bad thing. There's no in between. Psalm 5, 9, there's nothing reliable in their mouth. The inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Uh, may Yahweh cut off the all flattering lips. That sounds fun. Uh, Psalm 12, verse 3, the tongue that speaks great things. Now we read from the epistle of James, we know how dangerous the tongue can be what it's capable of, how dangerous it is. He says, James writes, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Able to bridle the entire body as well. We know nobody's perfect. We know very few people can bridle their tongue. So James goes on. He, says, he calls the tongue a, a bit in the horse's mouth or a rudder on a great ship. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence and is set on fire by hell. So what's the psalmist's solution? He says, let me answer with your word. 
Let my tongue be about your word. Singing is optional, obviously. For all your commandments are righteous. When he writes that, does he mean the Ten Commandments? Does he mean the Mosaic Commandments, the moral law, the commandments Jesus gave the disciples? You know what the answer is? Yes. All of them. He says, for all your commandments are righteous. The writer goes on. The next thing he talks about is is God's hand. He says, let your hand be ready to help me. Now, he's talked about lips. He's talked about the person's tongue. But he says, God, your hand, let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. Like the tongue, the hand of God is either a good thing or it's a scary thing. It's a good thing or it can be very, very bad depending on which side you're on. Not just in the Psalms, but through all of Scripture. His, whole, his hand holds ours as it saves us. He says, as the psalmist says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. Psalm 118 says, The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. In the New Testament, in 1 Peter, he writes, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. But the hand can also be a bad thing in a sense. It can be a scary thing. One of the most famous sermons in American history wasn't preached by me, by the way, because I'm not that good. But <laughs> there was a guy uh, by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He was a Puritan. And his, this is the most famous sermon in American history. And it's titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's about God's justice. It's also about God's love. If you've read it, you understand that. But he talked about the righteous right hand of God. And when he preached this message, it said that Edwards had to keep his voice so monotone, so even keeled. He had to be very careful how much inflection he gave each word. Because from the moment he began to even read the scripture, the conviction of the Holy Spirit fell on the crowd to the point people were digging their nails into the pew. They were whimpering. They were weeping because they knew they were sinners under God's wrath were it not for Christ. I don't know for sure I wasn't there. The Bible does speak quite a bit about God's righteous right hand, though, and that it's a thing of judgment. For the, for the Egyptians, for example, in Exodus 9, behold, the hand of Yahweh will come with a very heavy pestilence on your livestock. In Deuteronomy 2.15, moreover, the hand of Yahweh was against them to bring them into confusion from within the camp until they, came, they all came to an end. These are people who are God's enemies. But even someone like Naomi in the book of Ruth, she's an Israelite. She's under God's law. She's doing the best she can. And she even says, the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Now we know that it had in a sense, but also it was to draw Naomi home and bring her into a good relationship with him in faith through her daughter, daughter-in-law Ruth, and that that brought about uh, an incredible uh, family line. She's actually the great great grandmother to King David. When we have, like the psalmist, chosen his precepts, we have chosen what Jesus called the good part. That's what, he, that's what he says of Mary. If you remember the story of Mary and Martha, Martha was very much involved with cleaning the house and getting food ready. And Mary, her sister, was sitting on the floor listening to Jesus. And Martha got really upset about that and kind of said, Jesus, why can't you scold her? And Jesus said, only one thing is necessary for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Well, what's the good part? Mary, this is Luke ten thirty nine, was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. When we're seeking his word, when we're absorbing it, not just reading it and hearing it, but seeking to understand it, the Lord is, in a sense, he's helping us. He is drawing us closer to him. And there is great joy in his presence. There's joy in his word, joy in his grace, joy in the faith that draws us closer to him. We don't just find joy in the black and red letters on a page, but in understanding them and letting them feed our souls. And from there, it flows out of our lives. The psalmist goes on, he says, I long for your salvation, O Yahweh, and your law is my delight. By the way, the law is the one part where people read it and they get frustrated with their Bible reading plans because they think it's boring. The psalmist says, it's my delight. Notice that he longs for salvation. Now back in verse 166, he'd hoped for salvation, but now he desperately needs it. He's craving it. He wants it. He needs it. Truthfully, 
Everyone longs for the joy the Holy Spirit gives, the joy found in Christ. But few will ever actually find it because they look for it everywhere but in him. Again, Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide. The way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And for the believer, the psalmist says his law is a delight. We see this actually way back at the very beginning of this chapter in verse 16 that says, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. And again, in verse 24, your testimonies are also my delight. They are, they are my counselors. I'm sorry, I'm going to get a drink of water. My voice is really dry. Is it the weather that does this? Is it just dry weather, everybody? Anybody awake? He says, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. This, this law, of course, like I said, it's referring to the Torah. It's the only Bible the writer of the Psalms has. Through the law, the writer has joy. Because the law, in it, we see perfectly the justice of God and the law of God. I kind of mentioned this earlier. We understand that God has to punish sin, that he's holy. So he can't exist alongside that. But because of his love for us, he places the punishment on himself in the form of his son in the cross. Both God's justice and God's love are perfectly demonstrated. Through the cross, the law is fulfilled. So the psalmist begins to conclude by saying this. He says, let my soul live that it may praise you and let your judgments help me. When he says, let my soul live that it may praise you, the verbs live and praise are actually both future tense in the Hebrew. It accurately probably would have been uh, better to read it this way. You will give new life to my soul, and because of that, I praise you. That's what we see in Revelation. Whenever we, we see the scenes in heaven, heaven rejoices, it praises, because these are people who are now living in the presence of God. They've seen the fulfillment of his law and the fulfillment of his word and all of his judgments have come to pass. When God gives life, it, if it's a new life and a, and a believer, someone who is redeemed here, uh, we see that. Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance whether it's a life that ends in Christ or even begins new in Christ, we still praise him. We still see this, this joy that he has revealed in his word. It's, it's one of the most important things we understand that when we read this psalm, he says the judgments, well, judgments in the psalm's view are promises. They're promises that are for, fulfilled. A promise is, in, in the Psalms at least, it's either a promise of vindication or it's God bringing his justice into the picture. God doesn't give flaky judgments. He doesn't give flimsy promises. He's faithful. When we're in the word, when we're living with a right understanding of scripture, his judgments and his love and his promises, they are a help to us. The word right at the end, that word help, it's actually the Hebrew word yazru, and it means an assistant to us. An aid. It keeps us from sin. Many of you have no doubt heard the, the passage, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, the implication is it's keeping us on the right path. <clears throat> Our life, as it reflects the word of God, that is a defense to us. It's a guide to us. It's a help to us. The book of Proverbs has several verses about the importance of integrity, which is a shield of righteousness. It's a way that it keeps a man's path blameless. When we're in the word and we're living it out, and those who dislike us or want to shame us or slander us, Peter says it's actually to their, to their shame. He says, having a good conscience so that in the thing in which you were slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. When we're known as people who are in Scripture, who abase our lives out of Scripture, who live in tune with Scripture, it becomes a part of our reputation. It becomes a part of who we are. It's how people know us and understand us. And I'll give you a good example. Uh, a couple years ago, many of you know my friend, Pastor Terry Detweiler in Valley City. He was asked to be a guest speaker at a cohort in Bismarck. Now, if you know Terry, if you've ever met him, he's a very intelligent man. 
In fact, he just kind of looks like a bookworm, right? And he's my friend. I can say that, and he won't be mad at me, I promise. But he, he's a very intelligent guy, very smart guy. And he goes to this cohort, and someone came in. It was a youth pastor. And they said, man, I just, I'm so frustrated. Last night, someone, one of the kids in my youth group came in. They had this question, and I couldn't answer the question. And the guy who was leading the cohort looks across the table, not at Terry, but the guy sitting next to him and said, if there's anyone in the state of North Dakota who can answer that question, it's him. And he didn't point at Terry, he pointed at this other guy. And Terry said, my job at the table. I'm sitting right there with all of my books, everything on my computer open. I could look it up, I could research it right there. And this guy just begins to answer the question. Well, as I understand it in the Hebrew, blah, 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 blah. And the youth pastor said, that doesn't make any sense. I don't, that seems like too simple of an answer. Well, that's what the Bible says. Yeah. And Terry said, I looked in seven different commentaries. I looked in the different translations of scripture. I looked in the Hebrew and this guy knew it. How did he do that? I don't know. He just read his Bible, I guess. He did. He understood it. You see, that's what happens whenever it is part of who we are and people understand that. It will shock people. It will, you'll shock yourself with how much you know and how much it's gotten into your life. Do people see you and do they say that's a person of the word of God? Do they see the joy that you gain from it, the excitement that you have? One thing I will tell you this, this coming year in your Bible reading, be protective of that time. That is time for God to speak to you. To speak into your heart. Find joy in that time. And finally, the psalmist begins to close. He says, I have wandered off like a lost sheep. Search for your slave, for I have not forgotten your commandments. A better way to understand this would be if, if the psalmist is saying, if I wander, because the writer had, if he'd already gone astray, he certainly wouldn't wait till the very end to say this. Um, but he's saying, basically, if I wander or should I wander like a lost sheep, and we all have, Scripture makes that abundantly clear. Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Christ. In Jeremiah 50, he says, my people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. But this is why Christ came. Jesus said himself, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? That's what a good shepherd does. That's what Jesus does. Peter says, for you were continually straying like sheep, and now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Of course, he's referring to Christ. He's the good shepherd. In Psalm 23, when David says, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus comes along and in John 10, he says, that's me. I'm the one who does that for you. He says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for my sheep. Psalmist goes on, he says, search for your slave. How many of you have heard me talk about the Greek word doulos? This is the Hebrew word, Ived, and it's very similar. It's a corresponding word. But you understand that if you were somebody's slave, you were their property. And if you were to run off, if you were to reject their authority, we see this in the New Testament in a man named Onesimus. I accidentally said Erasmus last week. I want to correct that. Uh, some, only one or two of you caught that. I, I misspoke. Onesimus was a slave who ran away. And Paul writes the letter of Philemon. It's, one, it's the smallest book in your New Testament. And he says, don't write him off, but welcome him back. Consider him a brother. Restore a good relationship with him because that's what Christ does. That's what God wants to do with us. And we see that play out here. He says, search for your slave. Don't reject me. And God does it because he loves us. He wants us. And finally, he says, for I have not forgotten your commandments. Earlier, he said, your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. It's not just that he memorized words, but they were part of who he was. They were in his core. They were buried deep inside of him. And that's part of who he is now. 
And it should be that same way with us, that the word is firmly planted within us and the joy begins to spring forth in our lives and it's a powerful testimony of God's goodness and his faithfulness to his word. There's joy in understanding what what the Spirit says to us through the scriptures. Now this morning, I hope that I have read the scripture accurately, given the sense, and you've understood it. That's, that's what my hope is every Sunday, that, that we do that. My hope is this message encourages you, and in the new year, that you have a new, renewed zeal and passion for getting into your, your Bible reading. We do have fresh Bible reading plans available at the Welcome Center. If you want to grab one, fold it in half, put it in your Bible. Uh, it's one of those, it's actually kind of nice. It's not Genesis through Exodus, uh, sorry, Genesis through Revelation. It's, it's different parts of your Bible every day. It's kind of nice. Uh, There's joy in not just reading it, though, but seek to understand it. Take your time through it. Now, I did mention briefly Jeremiah 10, and I want to conclude today with a story about this. I I think this drives home the point, okay? When I was home for Christmas break one year from college, well, let me me back up. Okay, (laughs) you got to know a little bit about my family. I'm from the Bible Belt. Literally every family in my area of Illinois has at least one pastor in the family, all right? One preacher in the family. It's like they're the backup to do the funerals and, and do the weddings and things. Uh, before, before I came along, my great uncle Daryl was the pastor in our family. And, and since I'm not there, one of my uncles decided he'd get credentialed through the state. He did a certificate. I'm not putting him down. I'm just saying it's weird that he did it that way, but okay. Anyway, uh, so everybody, what that, what that leads to is everybody thinks they know the Bible. Everybody has a deep theological opinion. Everybody's got a good idea what's going on, right? And so <clears throat> this one particular Christmas break, I guess I was being kind of ornery. And my grandma, my mom's mom, who's still alive, she's not the grandma who passed away, uh, but she, she would every Christmas do this beautiful Christmas tree. Now, she never did a natural, an actual tree because my mom was deathly allergic to evergreen. The sap would make her break out in hives. Her throat would swell. It was really bad. So my grandma always had artificial trees, but she made them look so beautiful. And this particular Christmas, she had gotten a whole new tree, and it was tall. I mean, it filled up her entire living room, and it was wide, and it was this beautiful silver. And my grandma's a little crazy. She loves the color purple. And so everything was purple around it, and it reflected all this purple. And it was just, I walked in, I said, Grandma, honestly, even, even I'm not a big fan of purple, but I said, that is the most beautiful Christmas tree I think you've ever done. And you know what my grandma, she just says, well, it was a lot of work. <laughs> I'm sure it was, but that, that looks really pretty, grandma. Yeah, I wish we didn't have to have one, though. Well, why did you even, you know, grandma, I mean, at this point, I'm in my 20s. I'm the oldest grandson, by the way. And I said, you know, at this point, grandma, you don't have to do a Christmas tree if it's really that much trouble. And she's taking all the fun out of this, you know. It is beautiful. It was great. It was a good Christmas. Now I'm mad too, you know? And that's why I got a little ornery. She said, I said, well, why'd you do it? You don't have to do a Christmas tree. Yeah, we do. It's in the Bible. What? Yeah. You gotta have, you gotta have a Christmas tree. Jeffrey, you're supposed to do a Christmas tree every year. No, you're not. Well, how do you know? I don't know, Grandma, Bible college? You take a little bit of, you know, give me a little bit of credit. No, you don't know what you're talking about. Really? Well, I said, Grandma, why don't you go get a Bible? And you would think my grandma would have her own Bible. Again, Bible belt. I don't need one. I got it all up here. I said, go go get your Bible. Show me where it's at. And this woman goes and gets the family Bible. And when it made that sound on the coffee table, I'm telling you, this book, this family Bible's thick. I mean, it was written by Abraham. It's old, okay? And she slams it down. And she begins to look in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm sitting here, I'm starting to get a little panicky. Is the Christmas tree at Matthew? No, I know it's not. I know. Is it? No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm going crazy. 
She goes, oh, it's, I can't find it in Matthew. I said, well, Luke has a nativity. Try that. <laughs> so she looks in Luke. And now grandma's getting really mad. I've ruined Christmas for the record, okay? My Aunt Susan ruined it every year but this one, all right? And I said, I said well, you couldn't find it in Luke, huh? No, I know what's in there, though. Well, try Mark. Now, we did a whole series on Mark. There is no nativity in Mark. So I was sitting around a wild goose, goose hunt right there, right? She looks for two seconds in Mark. It's not there. I said, well, what about John? That, I know what the four Gospels are, Jeffrey. She couldn't find it in John. And you know what I learned? Grandma was looking for Jeremiah 10. Because it talks about trees and decorating trees. And she thought that was the Christmas tree. You understand, church, we can laugh about it, and Grandma has earned your giggles, okay, and, and my ire over this thing. And I have not let a Christmas go by without reminding her about that. It's always fun to tease my Grandma. You, you might think I get annoyed when she's, Jeffrey, that is the highlight of Christmas for me, okay? I like to tease my Grandma, but it's in love, and we can laugh about it, but church, honestly, is it any different when we say the Bible says this, so I'm going to quote it, I'm going to take this as mine, and I'm going to claim it out of context, and it's supposed to have some kind of authority? Have you ever thought about that? Church, too often we treat the Bible like it's a spell book, and it's the living word of God. If a Christian cannot find joy in it, in studying it, they need to check their heart and ask if they have a true relationship with its author. And I'm going to ask you to, the worship team to come back this morning, and I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to, we're going to close in a song this morning. If you want to, we're, well, we've lost Patty. There she is. Okay. So if you want to stand, we're going to close in worship this morning. And, and I'll, I'll end by saying this. If you're here and you don't have a good Bible, come and find me. I'll get you a good Bible. If you have a Bible that you don't find enjoyable to read, maybe it's King James and nobody talks like that, come and find me. I'll get you a good Bible. We have plenty to give away. Maybe your Bible's old and it's falling apart. Come and find me. But don't spend another day, please don't spend another year without going just a little bit deeper into Scripture and knowing what God has waiting for you there. I'm going to close in prayer after the song, but uh, Patty's going to lead us as, as we end today. <laughs>